Welcome to the AGA Podcast, where we bring you small talk on big topics from within the world of gastroenterology. Thanks for being with us. Now let's get started. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the AGA Podcast, Small Talk, Big Topics. I'm one of your hosts, Matthew Whitson. And with you today is another host, Nina Nandy. Correct. It is another host, Nina Nandy. Hi. <laughs> How are you, Dr. I'm Nandy? I'm doing amazing. How are you? I am so excited about this. Good. Happy Pride, girl. Happy Pride. Woo-woo. This Woo-woo. is where we need some music in the background. I don't think we have the budget for it, but this would be nice if we could. Get a little 909. <laughs> <laughs> so, Nina... What are you going to do to celebrate Pride before we jump into it? Oh, gosh. There's so many activities. Just reconnecting with friends, brunch, the Pride March slash parade, um, working at the medical tents at various events, giving back to the community that's been so amazing and supportive. What about you? I think we're hosting a family brunch. Yay. Am I invited? Am I part of the family? Are you coming to New York? Yeah, I could. <laughs> All right. Well, then we'll talk about that offline. Okay. But to celebrate Pride, we also invited two of our dear colleagues to kind of talk to us a bit about, I don't know, a little bit of a grab bag here, yeah. but to talk about rainbows and GI, to talk about being LGBT and in the community and GI as a faculty member and really talking about our LGBT patients. Which is particularly important given the current political space that we're in now. We will talk about the disparities. We'll talk about support of these patients. It's a, it's a great podcast. They really are in a vulnerable time after other multiple vulnerable times. So I think this is the right time to be talking about it. So with us today, first off, is Dr. Christopher Velez. Uh, If you don't know Chris, he is a neurogastroenterologist. He is up in Boston at the MGH. I've heard of that place. It's out there. (laughs) <laughs> who else is with us? So we also are very happy to have Dr. Sonali Paul, who trained in Boston as well at Tufts, and she is also at she was at MGH. She's a transplant hepatologist currently practicing at the University of Chicago, and she's my South Asian sister. They are two, first off, just wonderful people. Yeah. Who I don't know about you, but I learned so much from them. I learned every a lot, time I talk with them, and I'm so glad. Uh, you know, they come from such varied backgrounds, so diverse. Yeah, they are great people, and honestly, both of them have been leaders in this space in gastroenterology and hepatology, so I'm honored that they were here for our inaugural Pride episode. Yes, they have really great advice for taking care of patients, for talking about fellowship, how it's impacted training. I think it's just a fabulous episode. All right, I think we've hyped it enough. Should we get to it? Yes, please. Let's get to it. Have a good day, y'all. Have a good day. Happy Pride. So Sonali, why don't you introduce yourself and we'll go from there. Hi, everyone. I'm Sonali Paul. I'm a transplant hepatologist at the University of Chicago. My work not only is in transplant, but within hepatology specifically, one of my clinical areas of interest is non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, but I approach it from more of an obesity medicine um, perspective, really looking at the whole patient and not just the liver. And also I serve as an associate program director for our internal medicine program, specifically for diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. Awesome. What about you, Dr. Velez? Chris? Hi, my name is Christopher Velez, and I am at the Massachusetts General Hospital Center for Neurointestinal Health, where I focus predominantly on neurogastroenterology and motility disorders, things like IBS, GERD, etc. Part of my focus within the neurogastromotility space look 
intersects with cystic fibrosis related GI diseases. And I also use a lot of neurogastro know-how to better understand the disparities that likely exist in digestive diseases in LGBT people. Awesome. So first off, Happy Pride, everyone. Happy Pride. Yay! Happy Pride. Uh, this is, of course, an audio format, so no one can see any of the motions we just made. They can't see I our jazz they can, hands. <laughs> they, can, <laughs> they can appreciate our enthusiasm. So, you know, the first question I wanted to ask you, Dr. Paul and Dr. Velez, just be formal with both of you for a second, is can you tell us a little bit about how your careers or your life really intersect with the LGBT community? Do you want to go first, Chris? Sure. So I think I came out compared to especially how young people I feel are coming out now compared to a generation ago. I came out relatively late during medical school, and it was a bit trying to reconcile that part of my identity with the rest of my life. But I did, and I'm glad that it happened. I would say that I always struggled with who I come out to when or if in part because I'm always afraid. I was, I've historically been afraid of being mistreated or being discriminated against. Fortunate that I trained in places that were very supportive of me and my LGBT identity. So I was able to kind of build that foundation of comfort in myself and then using that as a point of advocacy for the needs that exist within our communities, particularly given how trying things have been recently. And so for me, I come from a very kind of strict Asia, South Asian background. Um, you know, my parents were immigrants. They immigrated in the 70s. And so our kind of mantra at home was, you know, education, hard work was going to get you far. And being gay was like never part of that algorithm for my for myself, um, as my parents thought. Um, and so I knew I was gay from a very young age, but um, you know, really couldn't come out to my family for fear that they just wouldn't accept it. And so I officially came out in college to a few people. And then during training, much of the similar reasons that Chris had, I was very kind of hesitant to who I came out to and when. And then it wasn't until I started interviewing for jobs outside of coming out of fellowship that I knew at at that point I was married, I had a child, and I knew wherever I wanted to be was they had to be accepting of me, my family, and my life because it's such a huge part of my life. And so thankfully, I found um, home at University of Chicago and a lot of my kind of work now, um, yes, I came out to my parents and it was horrible and they disowned me for five years and, you know, didn't, I didn't talk to them for five years, didn't come to my wedding. So it was very, and at the same time, I was like still finishing training. So there's a lot of trauma involved, but at the same time though, I think, you know, it's taught me um, so much about not only the coming out process for trainees, but also just how personal it is and how much we just need to respect and kind of how difficult it can be depending on where, where you are and especially in this political climate right now. Thank you for sharing that. Well, thank you so much for your story. How is your relationship now? Yeah, both of you. It's better now. You know, I think having a grandson changes a lot of things. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, my, my son, I delivered my son and, um, you know, they came back into our lives. I mean, I have a relationship with them because I want my son to have a relationship with them. I think grandparents are really important. They have a lot of perspective. And mm-hmm. so we have kind of, you know, kind of, you know, much like we do in South Asian culture, we just kind of swept everything under the rug, <laughs> pretend like nothing ever happened. But, you know, I think we have moved on and moved forward. I mean, I think my parents love my wife more than they like me at this point. So <laughs> that I don't believe <laughs> that's the sign of a good marriage. Yeah, yeah that's great. Right. Parents yeah, like your exactly. partner more. Exactly. <laughs> so I am curious. Chris, you alluded to this. It does. Oh, just for record, I came out 
oh God, a little bit in college, med school fully to everyone. But I know that in med school, when I was doing rotations, I kind of kept that a little bit more in the pocket. I'm not sure how people would react a little bit. So I am curious about, and I'll ask this to all of us, Nina, you included, if you want to talk about it. Like, how did you approach it while you were in training? And then now is that younger population, I think, is maybe out a little more early. Maybe it's a little more accepting. It's not there. It's still definitely tough stories. And it might depend where you're at, especially now. Who you are, where you're at, everything. But how do you, what, what advice do you give trainees about that process? Because when this is, you know, it's Pride Month and GI Fellowship applications are going out in two or three weeks from now. So what was your experience like and um, what advice do you give to the future generations? A lot to unpackage with that question, I think. There's about seven questions <laughs> yeah. in there. Sorry about that. But I can, but I can, um, but I can, I think the first and foremost is that there is no one way and not one way yeah. is correct. Because I think that a lot of it's going to depend on where you are, how affirming your one's education and training environment is. I There are issues that exist in every city, every state. I know that there are, I living in Massachusetts, having grown up in New York, I feel like I've been shielded from the worst of things, but things have still happened. But it was good to be in a situation where it wasn't out of the norm for a person in power to have experience with LGBT people. So then they wouldn't be there was that just one extra less step I had to take compared to someone in a part of the country where perhaps people are more likely to be in the closet. I would say people have reached out to me regarding horror stories that are still happening in the 2020s. Um, one person talking about on the interview trail after they had declared an interest in understanding LGBT health basically being told by an interviewer that, that why would they bother even mentioning that? How was that ever relevant to being a doctor? This isn't, this isn't this decade, not, not 50 years ago. Mm. Another person being told by a supervisor as they were finishing fellowship, let me give you some good career advice. Don't be, be a doc who's gay. Don't be a gay doc because who, who cares? These are things that are happening like in this decade. And those types of, all it takes is, one voice like that to make one recoil. And then you also have some members of our communities that are like, oh, why didn't you come out? Why didn't you have the the strength to come out? And I think that that's why I have that belief that there is no correct way to come out. And I think that it's important to recognize at what what is important when. So Sonali mentioned a very critical career juncture, fellowship to becoming on faculty. You could have the greatest faculty in a part of the world that is the top, and but if they are making assumptions towards people who are in same-sex relationships or who are under the umbrella that are offensive, they're not affirming, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter in the end because you have to be able to live in a place, work in a place where you feel don't need to hide what your life is outside of work. So it's hard to have a one-size-fits-all. You have to do what makes sense at your stage, where you're at physically, where you're at mentally, where you're at with your, um, your own journey. And that's the uh, <laughs> pretty vague um, advice, but I do think it's important um, for people to feel that it doesn't matter how they are in their journey. Their journey is their journey. 
No, I totally echo that, Chris. I mean, I think, it, you know, if someone had told me you have to be out on your application in residency, I would be like, oh my God, I don't want to go into medicine, right? Um, and so it really does have to be when you're comfortable. I mean, I was outed by my program director to the whole division inadvertently. She, they thought they were you know, doing me a favor because for them, it was like not a big deal. Like she, she didn't understand, like, why is this such a big deal for you? Like, it's not a thing. Like, you shouldn't be worried. Everyone's going to accept you. But, you know, not really realizing that that's something that is kind of something I control and should always be in my power. Because I, I felt mortified, I mean, right? I was mortified when that happened. And yes, in retrospect, it was not a big deal. But like, I didn't, I, mentally, I wasn't there yet with my own kind of being, with my own just com- comfortableness of being a gay physician. And I think the other thing that Chris had mentioned, you know, I, you know, six or seven years ago had a huge interest in studying LGBTQ health disparities in GI and was told that there is no need for that. And why would I ever do something like that? And I have to say, Yes, I recoiled. I was like, oh my God, how stupid am I for even like thinking that this is a thing, right? And now look at us like, you know, seven years later. So um, it totally matters. Like if you have one person, you know, one person out of a sea of how many that tells you that that's a you know, stupid idea or, you know, it's not worthy of studying, it really, it, it does make a difference. And I think I'd like to echo that and say it also means that one person can have a tremendous impact. I remember having people that almost were a little upset with me because I didn't come out with them. Like, what what was about me that didn't make you feel comfortable about coming out? And again, to Sonali's point, it's my my right to decide when I come out. It it can for our allies who may be listening. It can you can be that one person that can turn otherwise dark day, dark month, dark year in training and have offer that bit of light. So kind of along those lines and kind of, Sonali, how you wanted to talk about LGBTQ disparities within GI, why do you think, well, first of all, what is Rainbows in GI, if you could tell our listeners, and then why do you think programs like that are important for both of you? So Rainbows and Gastro, so we call ourselves RIG, you know, it's really started by kind of almost by accident. Um, It was through Twitter. I had written a piece in the American Journal of Gastroenterology kind of talking about why we need to start talking about this, especially in GI and hepatology and some of my own experiences with my son. And then Nikki Duong had kind of Twitter messaged me, (laughs) direct messaged me and was like, hey, like, I'm interested in this. I, I read it, like, we should get together. And then we ended up having a Zoom meeting. And then eventually, like, other people joined. We joined, we asked other people to join and then all of a sudden it turned into this thing, which I think our messages or rather our mission is charm. So it's community healing, advocacy, research, and mentorship. And I think, you know, having affinity groups, I think are just so, so important because I think this past DDW made me realize how um, important this work is because I met an intern who is actually a foreign medical grad from India, gay. Um, She's in Boston right now looking into GI. And I, she told me, she was like, you know, I was looking through to see which fellowships I could go into that seemed like they would welcome me. And she was like, you know, endocrine came, seemed kind of cool. Infectious disease seemed kind of cool. But initially she was like, you know, there was nothing really in the GI or hepatology space that seemed like it would and like it be at all welcoming or welcome the kind of research questions that she wants to study until she like said, like until she found kind of rainbows and gastro. And so I think, you know, having that visibility for, especially for our trainees kind of coming through the ranks, knowing that there are folks, because I, to be honest, I thought I was like a, a unicorn. I thought I was like the only gay hepatologist. Right. And then all of a sudden I'm like, I found another gay Bengali hepatologist, right? Like, you right? Like, like how many, I mean, how specific is that? Cause I, you know, I was talking to someone and I was like, you know, I'm still a, hepa- I'm still a unicorn. Fine. Like I'm not the only gay 
GI hepatologist, but like I'm the only gay Bengali person, woman. And then they found someone who's also a gay, gay Bengali woman who's married to a Filipino woman and has two sons. So like, I mean, like the, the Love it. yeah. So, and my, <laughs> my wife is also Filipino. So like, yes, I'm clearly not a unicorn, but I mean, I think having groups like this though, make you realize that there are people out there with similar interests that want to do, have the same mission and values as you, which is really, really affirming. I mean, it's deeply important that someone could change their entire career trajectory based on that. You know, she was considering yeah. other fellowships based on what would be most inclusive. Yeah. Particularly challenging for the procedural specialties that historically have been male dominated, like That's gastroenterology, true. where I have mentees that comment on, oh, I thought that if I wanted to have an LGBTQ focus, I had to go into endocrine or go into infectious disease or go into HIV care or go into primary care because I don't think I would have found a welcoming space, as Sonali just mentioned right now, in the in a GI procedural specialty, which is perceived to be not as affirming as other specialties. So I'm curious about, so, so as you guys all know, I'm a program director. Sonali, you're an APD of internal medicine. Chris, I can't remember, are you a PD or APD? You're not a PD, but APD? I'm associate program director for the advanced fellowship in uh, oh, wow. GI at my institution. Fantastic. So everyone's got an educational role here. So what advice can we give to our program director, fellowship director, leadership, partners in crime, colleagues, as to demonstrate that they are welcoming? What can they do to say, hey, this is a home for you. We want you here. You're invited here. This is your space. Um, We want you in our program. What can we do to really advertise that out? Or are there tricks that you guys utilize, maybe? I can go first. I think that in reality is in the internet age, every application for the next step in training is going to involve an internet search featuring the non-discrimination policy of your institution, making sure that it includes sexual orientation and gender identity as axes in which discrimination will not be permitted, not that discrimination be permitted in any access, but to explicitly highlight sexual orientation, gender identity as something that's being protected. And this is where I think there's a little bit of crosstalk between what's happening with reproductive rights and LGBTQ rights, where we're seeing nationwide that, for example, in some training programs where one needs to have complete access to a full array of reproductive rights, where we've seen training numbers drop in in states, for example, where OB-GYN rate had fallen in states where people are afraid they wouldn't be able to perform the full spectrum of reproductive rights, you will have to try a little harder if you're a program director who wants to create an affirming environment, an inclusive environment in a jurisdiction now that's being perceived as increasingly hostile towards LGBTQ-ness. I think beyond that website, I think it is highlighting what efforts have been done to recruit trainees, to recruit um, healthcare workers. It doesn't necessarily need to be only physician-based. It could be thinking about other members of our um, healthcare professional colleagues. And I think at the interview day, just sort of not making assumptions of, oh, you're a man, so are you married? What's your wife's name? Things like this that can make an applicant recoil. Those are the ways that I would would advise a program director to try to... uh, create a affirming recruitment environment for LGBTQ trainees. 
Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. And just to kind of add on, I mean, one thing, although I think the new application might have pronoun fields already. I know in some of the, I think maybe definitely in internal medicine, I think they now have pronoun fields. I don't know if it's come across for all of the fellowship categories, but that was one thing I had suggested to our program director to be like, hey, when we invite folks, maybe just have a few questions and be like, hey, do you want to give us your pronouns? It's not obviously required, but it's an option. And I think that is one way. And it's, you know, I think folks feel like it's such a stupid thing, right? For, for me, when I see people have pronouns, I take a step back and it's almost like a sigh of relief. It's like, I, like I was holding tension somewhere and I see that and I get a little bit more kind of reassurance. And it's the same thing with, you know, seeing um, progress pride flags or pride flags kind of, you know, little things that demonstrate inclusivity and welcoming of our community. Like when I walk into a clinic that has the progress pride flag right at the you know, window decal, you know, it's the same thing. I, I relax just a little bit. And we know that folks that come into a room, you know, I, we, you know, LGBTQ folks scan the room to find signs that they will be included and that they, you know, won't have to worry about being kind of, you know, in danger. And so, and, you know, it seems like very, very silly and it can, it does seem very silly, right? It's like a sticker, but for me that, that it means the world. I remember the first thing I did when I got to my new job is that we, you know, how you have all the, like the doctor's office magazines is that we actually had queer specific magazines added to it like advocate or something along those lines uh and that was the first that was the first subtle thing which doesn't work as well for a virtual recruitment of fellows but uh does work for our patients having comfort that may be a nice transition here because the other thing and and sonali you started alluding to this is that there really are disparities in healthcare for our lgbt population just for the listenership and, and really honestly for me and nina Could you guys give us a broad summary of what the disparities are out there just to start? Do do you want me to start, Chris? Okay. Um, Go ahead. You guys guys are by far the most polite guests we've ever had. (laughs) Very polite, yes. Um, We're so used to talking over each other um, on rounds. (laughs) That's awesome. Um, So I think... (laughs) So I think very broadly, I mean, outside of the GI hepatology realm, I think, you know, things that are definitely increased in the LGBTQ populations are things like mental health, depression, anxiety, and not surprisingly, if you think of the minority stress theory of just you already have a minority status. So in addition to everything else that's been going on kind of politically um, and other facets of your life, it causes one stress on top of the general stressors, and that can definitely increase mm-hmm. rates of depression and anxiety. Um, substance use, probably kind of the same reasons. So tobacco and alcohol, two to three times more likely than heterosexual folks. And then also violence. I think this is something that we sometimes forget about. And this actually does have, I think, ramifications in all of medicine, but specifically in GI, since we do a lot of kind of personal exams. And so trauma, just thinking about physical, emotional, sexual trauma. And our transgender folks actually have the highest rates, especially trans people of color. And so, you know, using a trauma-informed kind of care model is super important. And I don't think that's something we get a lot of training for. And so those are the kind of the things just within kind of broadly speaking. I mean, there's also potentially increased rates of heart disease and breast and cervical cancers potentially because of decreased cancer screenings and then obesity and and eating disorders as well. Hard to follow after that. (laughs) I think to extend it... Extend it a little further, I think part of the issue becomes, I think a lot of the issue that makes it hard for researchers, clinicians, and the healthcare system in general, and and medical education, both undergraduate and graduate, 
to address these issues is there's still a lot of implicit bias associated with discussing them. So look at what's happened with monkeypox and pox, where the moment that it started to be coming out predominantly in communities where men have sex with men, there were automatic statements that were suggesting promiscuity. It's basically, it's, it's their fault for X, Y, and Z, and that's why they're becoming infected, which we would never, we should never do for any community, but it seems still socially, politically, sociopolitically acceptable to do that for LGBT people. I think that when it comes to focus, if you look at at particularly academic medicine, where you have the clinical realm, the research realm, and the education realm, education, very little that's given at the undergraduate and graduate medical levels about LGBTQ issues, which has implications in generation after generation of medical trainees, particularly, and not just physicians, thinking about nursing training, thinking about advanced practice providers, that also has an impact. When you look at research, there's still research that uses still pretty offensive terms like homosexual in the middle of an article title. I assume best interest, but that means a failure of author, failure of reviewer, failure of editor, failure of multiple rounds of author, reviewer, and editor. So even when research, which is needed, is done, it's not necessarily being done with outside of a framework of implicit bias. When you think of clinical care, it's easy to quickly deflect when you misgender someone, for example, and but then that deflection becomes a problem, much more of a problem than the actual misgendering event. It's the assumption of heterosexual orientation of someone where you then have to say, well, actually, no, not only is it not possible for me, it's not possible for me to have X, Y, and Z. My partner is also the same, the same sex that I am. All of these things, and that's just talking about healthcare. So if you're a patient navigating the space, you hear an article about that's talking about that uses the term homosexual, you've been misgendered by your, your physician, you are dealing with the thousands of cuts that's living as someone of LGBT identity in society where you're living in a state where you could be arrested for which bathroom you live in. It's this all weighs down and it weighs on people in a way that we have to find ways to cope. We just can't deal with that level of stress consistently and without having some off valve. And sometimes that coping is not in the most healthy way. And I think once you understand that framework, I think then becomes easy to say, why hasn't anyone tried to see how these types of stressors impact the way that GI tract health happens among LGBT people. And I think it's just it, better late than never. And I'm glad that I have someone like Sonali uh, as a partner in crime to try to push the envelope. So what do you think are our potential blind spots in trying to support these individuals? Do you feel like sometimes, you know, people are trying to be so inclusive that they are actually dismissing a patient by coming in and saying, well, I'm not going to say, you know, your given name or you know, use your pronouns, but just kind of say, hi, this is who I am. Like, what are you here for? And kind of make it a non-issue and not really acknowledge it at all. Hmm. Challenging. I think partly though, I mean, part of it is the reason we have so many unknowns is because we don't collect so like sexual orientation and gender identity data throughout 
you're at the board, right? Like what clinical trials, I mean, prospective clinical trials that are industry sponsored say like actually have a SOGI data you know, collection. Like I don't think I've seen any, not at least in GI or hepatology. And so if we don't start collecting this data, I think it's really hard. And so Yes, I think for me, even though the reason I'm seeing them might be for elevated liver tests, and yes, maybe it has nothing to do with their sexual orientation or gender identity. At the same time, like I am one of those physicians that really likes to get to know my, like we talk like small talk, right? And if I miss this huge part of who they are, or I'm so standoffish that they don't feel comfortable telling me, I feel like I've done a disservice not only to them, but to Mm -hmm. me. I know it sounds corny, but like, that's one of my favorite things seeing patients, right? Like is getting to like, know they're like, you know, what what they do, what they do outside of, you know, what they do at work or how many kids they have, or, you know, what are their hobbies? And so, um, right. Like the other day I found this 85 year old woman whose hobby is actually to do roller coasters. She like goes on every single, like roller coaster. And I was like, well, how do you do? And she like, that's how we started talking. Right. So I feel like, I mean, Yes, oftentimes it is very much related, and I think we need to know. But oftentimes, if we don't do it, especially if we're forming longitudinal relationships, which we often do in GI and hepatology, I think we're just missing so much of the patient. I have to agree with that entirely. I think that's it's sort of language matters. And in this instance, you're mentioning language where you just language doesn't exist if you choose not to try to assess that. But I think one thing that's been important in the way that terminal or the way that we use words in medical care is that we don't say, Oh, this is a eighty. This is a seventy-five-year-old diabetic. This is a seventy-five-year-old person with diabetes. It's easy to dehumanize if you don't get these elements of humanity. And the reality is, people who tend to say it's not important, I treat people all people equally, have no problems with reinforcing gender and heteronormative cues, positively reaffirming when a patient is talking about their children, positively reaffirming when they're talking about their opposite-sex partner. So it's not that a matter of it's it doesn't matter. We're doing it for some people who fit within a certain mold of what is appropriate behavior and what and we don't do it for others and then we say it's not important for that group. And I think it's just conversations, podcasts like this, it's trying to show that it's it's easier now when we try to move towards an era where patients are they're human and they're not their disease. If you have you recognize the humanity of patients, you're able to connect and offer better care. Being LGBT is an element of some people's humanity. And why wouldn't we want to engage in that? I have found that that access to the humanity of physicians sometimes ends up becoming the barrier itself for some of my LGBT, and particularly, I'll say trans patients, who have had such negative interactions or maybe really mediocre interactions with physicians along the way that they end up avoiding physicians, unfortunately. Um, and, and that's certainly something that we've worked with uh, a few of our health centers to kind of increase access to GI for that population. And I want to say it's, I think I perhaps have some understanding it's different or more comprehensive than others, I make mistakes. I think that there is also needs to be room for people to make mistakes as long as it's from a position of humility. If you make the mistake and are basically saying, well, it doesn't matter to everyone equally, that's not from a humble perspective. That's from a, you're only trying to protect yourself by trying to deflect a sense of having had made a mistake. If you approach it from the position of humility of, 
I'm so sorry. I just noticed right now the name that you prefer to be called. Uh, let me see what I can do to make it more prominent. Do you mind if I include that information in my note? Would you prefer, since you're moving to a jurisdiction where it may be more difficult, that that epic is so portable from one state to another that you don't want me to mention that in that note where it's gotten a bit more complicated over the past year or so. But it's if you approach these situations from humility, recognize you'll make mistakes. It goes so, so far. So Sonali, you know, Nina brought up the idea of blind spots and you, you mentioned briefly trauma informed care and the vulnerability of some of the procedures we do for gastroenterologists. I think it's such an important point for, the broader community of GI and, and hepatology physicians. Could, could you speak a little bit more about that just so uh, that doesn't get lost uh, in this conversation? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I think because rates of trauma are higher in the LGBTQ population, and I think, to be honest, I think we should be asking most of all of our patients these questions. And so I think obviously it's not just isolated, but for me, I mean, at least when I used to do GI, I don't do a ton of GI net right now, but um, right. If I don't really have to do a rectal exam in the office, like if there is no need for me to do that exam, like if I'm going to do a colonoscopy anyways, and like, I'm going to do the rectal exam then, you know, there are ways I think that can kind of mitigate those really uncomfortable experiences. And so a lot of folks, you know, a lot of um, LGBTQ folks ha- go into, you know, avoid the doctor because they don't know what's actually going to happen during the exam. Right. And so and kind of broadly just saying kind of maybe what you're thinking and maybe what you're doing um, or what you're going to do. I think the other thing that's really important is just to just ask about trauma. I think it's really, it is very, very sensitive, but especially if you're going to be doing um, like a colonoscopy or, or something else that is very intimate, I usually say think something like because abuse and violence are common, it can affect a person's health. Um, I try and um, ask all my patients if they've ever had these experiences. And then, you know, it takes a few times. They may not open up completely that first time, but I think you've planted the seed that you might be a safe person and that you care, right? And so I think, and it, yes, it, sometimes like the first time, I, first few times I've done that, it's super awkward. Yes, of course it is. Like, but it requires practice, like everything else. And um, and again, like I make mistakes, um, you know, I, I say things that I shouldn't and, but I apologize and I approach everything kind of from this sense of cultural humility. Like I am very humble. Um, and I tell my patients, I'm like, you know, like you are the captain of your ship, <laughs> right? Like I am a co-pilot, like I am a co-captain, <laughs> like you're going to tell me what is going well and what isn't. And I think if you can, for me, I feel like for all my patients, but especially I think the LGBTQ folks and people of color, like if I can shift the narrative and the power a little bit over to them to kind of drive drive the ship, so to speak, I think it can be a very kind of powerful experience. 100%. That's absolutely agree. true. Yeah, I think that um, the trauma question, it, it's uncomfortable for a lot of people to ask. And I think if you are comfortable with it, patients will sense that and they're more likely to open up and tell you about their experiences, which really do affect their care. I can remember if I can talk about something real quick in medical school, I think I was a med school or a resident where I had this, I didn't even know to ask about these things. And I think maybe we do not the best job in our curriculum about talking about it. But I had referred uh, a woman who had um, anal rape trauma uh, for anorectal manometry, and I had no idea what that entailed, you know. And then when she came back to see me, she's like, this is what happened. And I was completely like, like, just having a horrible panic attack. And I, I felt like I did this to a person. I felt absolutely terrible. And I wish that I had more knowledge and experience at that time. I was mortified. I think 
Some institutions are, are, my institution is including a trauma assessment as part of our open access program. So I think part of what ends up being challenging for us on the GI side of thing is that I'm scoping people in two flows. One, it's a clinic patient of mine where I've, I've gone through discussion of risk versus benefit. I hopefully try to assess for trauma history, although I can always do better about that. And then I'll say, well, in this instance, I think you'd be a, a candidate for moderate sedation, but you actually may be given this history, we should be thinking about a deeper sedation to prevent re-experiencing re that trauma. When I have an open access case, I don't have that discussion before. So we actually are including it as, a, as part of the uh, stellar efforts from our QI team at my institution. We're including an assessment of trauma in order to help avoid, to reduce those instances. So it's, it can be challenging as a gastroenterology uh, physician to assess for trauma, but it's so prevalent in so many different domains among LGBT people, it needs to be, it needs to be a higher focus. But really, it, like everyone's been saying, that's for, it's for we should be doing a better job of screening everyone. I think we've hit some good keys for the listenership. Now I'm curious, so we're, we're kind of winding down the podcast now, and I, I want to transition a bit to kind of pride. So this is kind of our pride episode. I'm curious for you guys, you know, two questions. Chris, I'm going to limit it to two, not seven, <laughs> two. <laughs> the first is, is there something about pride that's meaningful for you? And the second question is, what is a pride tradition that you all have that it just brings you kind of smiles and joy and, and happiness? What pride means for me, it's I'm a bit of a history nerd, so it's hard for me to not go down a Wikipedia rabbit hole, but it's to recognize that in the late 1960s, after centuries of oppression, that people like me eventually one day said, enough, we're done. And it's remembering you know, why it's a pride march and not a pride parade, why our job is not done, particularly in a set of circumstances now where we're facing some attempts at rollback of equality and pro uh, progress and equality. So I think for me, I always try to reflect on that. And that's what pride means for me. In terms of traditions, I don't know. It's being in Boston, it's been a bit uh, challenging for Pride Month where we didn't even have one last year, but or Pride, uh, a Pride event where we didn't have one citywide last year. But I think it's reconnecting with friends. It is when I lived in New York, it was going uh, down Fifth Avenue, it was, go or not Fifth Avenue, one of the avenues, I forget which avenue. Um, it going down to see the uh, march going through the village, spending time hanging out with friends after, planning what we were gonna do the rest of the summer on Fire Island, just I think reconnecting with friends, just particularly as it's so easy to get busy in the minutia of day-to-day -day life. I think that's, that's a tradition I hope to keep up. Yeah, that's great, Chris. Um, so for me, I have kind of a, love-hate relationship with Pride. Um, so when I was like, coming to and kind of coming out or in the process and I wasn't fully out um, when I was in training, I went to the Pride parades and Pride marches with my wife or girlfriend at the time, soon-to-be wife. And I always came home feeling really terrible because I was like surrounded by all of these people that were so proud of who they were and I couldn't get there, right? Like I just felt there was something wrong with me. And, you know, it took me a really long time to feel comfortable in my own skin and like be out. And once that happened, like, you know, 
pride marches, especially with my son, have been fantastic. You know, our tradition is, um, so we have two traditions. Um, we always celebrate pride at his school. So he's an, um, he's eight, so he's in second grade. But starting in nursery school, we've come in, so my wife and I come into the classroom. We read kind of an age-appropriate book. We do some sort of activity. Like last year, we made um, progress pride flags. Um, and then there's some sort of like, you know, food, of course, for children. Um, so something food. <laughs> um, and so and then they get pride swag. Um, and so we make like little bags of like stuff that's age appropriate for them. And I have to say, like the first year, like when we had introduced the topic, the teachers were totally for it. But I think the parents were a little like, oh, my God, what is, what's going to happen? And so I had to like I remember writing an email to the to the, the whole class of uh, being like, listen, like we're not doing anything major. This is the book we're reading and we're going to make some caterpillar like, I don't know, like rainbow um, fruit sticks or something, but you know, it's been, you know, it's, it's come a long way. I mean, I think this year my son picked out the book about Harvey Milk and kind of everything that happened with him. I can't remember the, the name escapes me. So that's one thing we do. And then, um, the other thing we do, that's awesome. the morning of pride, um, so pride also June co- corresponds to my wife's birthday. And so we usually decorate our kitchen with like balloons and rainbow things everywhere and have a breakfast. So we make breakfast for ourselves and then go out to the pride merch. That's awesome. Awesome. That's fantastic. What about you, Nina? You got anything? Oh, well, I think some of the things I do during Pride I can't talk about on this <laughs> podcast, but I think um, <laughs> it's definitely. That's, that's, uh, <laughs> that's AGA after, uh, after dark. After dark, yeah. yeah. No, I mean, it's definitely, it's definitely a way to reconnect with friends. Um, and then there's also always like a volunteer event where you can do first aid for the march or for different events, uh, bingo, drag shows, different things. Like they might be like a citywide event and you can kind of volunteer your time. So I typically do that. And just take part, uh, part in the celebration and just reconnect with people from all over. So nice. it's always fun. I will personally say that I have always had a love-hate relationship with Pride, but for a very petty reason, in that <laughs> my that? birthday is June 28th. <laughs> and it always, it always frustrated me that some of my friends couldn't come to a birthday thing because it was falling on some event uh, in New York City. Um, so that is a purely petty reason. Um, I fully admit it. But what I will say is that we are, we're actually hoping to start a tradition this year uh, and by hosting actually a Pride brunch for the first time because we actually have the space for it in a New York City uh, apartment like for the first time ever. So um, we're really kind of looking forward to that. And then Sonali, we are uh, we are in the middle of starting our surrogacy journey. Yes. So wow. I, I, awesome. I think I, I cannot. Oh, wow. Yeah, <laughs> breaking news, I guess, on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, but I didn't the, know. Um, the, uh, <laughs> it's exciting. Uh, but what I was saying is I really, uh, if it's okay with you, that what you were telling the story about uh, you, your wife, and your son, uh, I really want to take that to my partner because that, that's so cool. Yeah. Um, and really kind of do something like that going forward. So thank you for sharing yeah, that as well. All right, guys. So last thing that we want to ask everyone is just where can people reach you? You know, for Nina, it sounds like in the club. <laughs> but, like, <laughs> but prof- professionally, where can they reach out to you guys and how can they connect with you uh, if they are interested in getting involved, if they want to know more, they want to learn about your program, what, whatever it is. So they can definitely tweet me. So my um, Twitter handle is um, at SPaulLiver. And then my email is um, SPaul at uchicago.bsd.edu. For me, probably on Twitter as well. I'm at Chris underscore Velez underscore MD. So easiest just to send me a message and uh, we can connect there. Fantastic. Guys, thank you so much for being here. This is awesome. 
Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. This was great. Thank you for listening to the AGA podcast. To reach us, please email us at agapodcast at gastro.org or follow us on Twitter at MJWitsonMD, at NinaNandyMD, and at CSCMD. Podcast production done by Resonant Recordings. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Thanks for listening and have a good one.